Please open your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. This morning we return to our series in the Gospel according to Matthew. We've been slowly and deliberately making our way through Matthew since September of 2020, or October, one of those. That was a long time ago. And some of you probably couldn't speak then. (laughs) But as we've been making our way through Matthew, we are now at the climax of Matthew's narrative. Now, two weeks ago, Chris brought us to behold Christ crucified. He showed us how Matthew wants his readers, how he wants us to see Jesus on the cross through the eyes of those who were there. So we look through the eyes of the Roman soldiers who saw Jesus as just another political problem. We look through the eyes of the crowds who saw Jesus' crucifixion as just a spectacle. We look through the eyes of the religious leaders who saw Jesus' crucifixion as their vindication, as, as an act proving that they were right all along. But Matthew wants us to see something else, something far more significant. Matthew wants us to look at the crucifixion, crucifixion of Jesus through, through our eyes and to see Jesus nailed to the cross of wood and see not a man suffering a brutal and unjust death, but to see the willing sacrifice of the very Son of God for us. To say that this is the most profound moment in human history, that's a massive statement, is not an exaggeration. So we must look. We must linger here. We must consider what the death of Jesus Christ means. And we don't linger here asking what this death means so that we might feel better about ourselves. We linger here to look to Jesus Christ, to look to the only one who can bring us salvation, to look to our only hope in life and in death. And as we look to Jesus, let us come with with sober minds, with soft hearts, as we behold the Son of God forsaken for us. Let's read together now from Matthew 27. Follow along with me. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. And I'm going to read to verse 61. This is the Word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake 
and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you with nothing but need, deserving nothing but condemnation. Yet you come to us in your love, in your mercy, in your grace. And you speak to us. You speak to us through your word, revealing this love and mercy and grace. So Lord, would you speak to us as we look to your word this morning. May we behold the glory of Jesus Christ this morning. Help us, we pray. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Only you can do this by your spirit. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a, once again, a, a weighty text, a serious text. And we're going to make our way through this text by looking at two portraits of Jesus. And the first portrait is this, Jesus Christ forsaken. Jesus Christ forsaken. Let us consider together the forsaken Jesus. Matthew begins this scene in darkness. I was kind of hoping the lights would turn off then, but they didn't, so it's okay. No, Matthew begins this scene in darkness. He tells us that at the sixth hour, which is, is midday, 12 p.m. for us, noon, there is darkness over all the land. At this point, Jesus has already been on the cross for around three hours. But now suddenly, startlingly, darkness. Now it could be easy to look for some natural explanation for this darkness. Perhaps it was a solar eclipse. But this is taking place during the Passover, which is celebrated at the full moon. An eclipse cannot happen with a full moon. Plus, this is a darkness that lasts for three hours. Darkness. Not natural darkness, a supernatural darkness. In this moment, as Jesus hangs on the cross, when everyone would expect light, there is darkness. And here in this moment, it's, it's as if the light of creation is being snuffed out and all of the land descends into darkness. It's as if all of God's work of creation is being put in reverse. Think back to how the Bible begins. The Bible opens with an earth without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. 
creation in darkness. You know what the next words are? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. This was God's first act of creation, speaking light into darkness. You may remember the plague of darkness that God brought to Egypt, a darkness so dark that it could be felt. But Pharaoh would not let the people go. Then the Lord brought a final plague on Egypt. At night, in the midst of darkness, God passed through the land and struck down every firstborn. But he passed over those with their doorposts covered in blood. This night was to represent the beginning of time for God's people. It was the first month of the year. And out of the darkness of this night, God delivered his people into the light of his promised land. When Isaiah prophesies of a coming Assyrian invasion, an invasion that's coming as God's judgment upon a disobedient and rebellious people, he tells them in Isaiah 8, 22, that they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But the Lord promises that he will not forget his people. For a day is coming when those people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light will shine. And when this light shines, it comes in the form of a baby. A baby who, Matthew tells us, shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When this baby is born, while the shepherds keep watch over their flock by night in darkness... Out of darkness, the glory of the Lord is shown around them. Light shines bright. When this baby is born, Gentiles come from the east because they saw this star when it rose. They saw his light shining, and they follow it so that they might worship him. When Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew tells us that he went and lived in Capernaum, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled. The words that I just quoted from Isaiah 9, that those people dwelling in darkness would see a great light. With the coming of Jesus, it is undeniable that the Bible teaches that the light of God is dawning. But in this moment, at this hour, when the light should be shining, all the land descends into darkness. The darkness of this day is a symbol of the spiritual darkness that comes upon Jesus on the cross. What darkness represents is an uncreation, a separation from how things were made to be. We are made to be in fellowship with God. But to be in darkness is to be under judgment, to be separated from God. Jesus refers to this kind of darkness three times in Matthew. And every time he uses the same phrase, he refers to an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of horror, a place of judgment. This is where the man with no wedding garment who crashes the wedding party is sent. It's a place for the wicked and slothful servant who received one talent and buried it in the ground. Those who reject God are those who are cast into darkness. But here, Jesus, 
God himself, the very son of righteousness, is plunged into this outer darkness. But why? How? He is the innocent one. He has done nothing to deserve this. Darkness. But the Bible is clear again and again. Jesus Christ goes into this darkness out of obedience to his Father for the glory of God for us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He knew no sin. God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul writes in Galatians 3 that God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And in becoming a curse for us and taking on our sin, he has been plunged into darkness. One theologian says that, that was in this moment that our sins, our sins, blotted out the sunshine of his Father's face. This is why we say in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. This is the hell, the outer darkness that Jesus descends into. It's our judgment that he bore, our darkness that he goes into, our separation from God that he takes on. And after three hours, three hours of this darkness, of this hell, this spiritual suffering, Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it may seem at first that, that maybe Jesus is facing some doubt in this moment, some crisis for him. But he makes this his cry as a, a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus makes this his cry because in this moment he knows he is fulfilling this scripture. He is acting in obedience to his Father's will. So he cries out, My God even as he is facing the horror of being forsaken by his God. Now I must be clear here that while we cannot deny that Jesus is forsaken by God in this moment, he did not become in this moment not God. The unity between the Trinity is never broken. Now this is a, a mystery that is far too deep for us, but we know who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit, how Scripture reveals him. And we know and trust what he says in his word. Jesus was the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yet in this moment, while remaining God incarnate, Jesus experiences a real God forsakenness. But why? Brothers and sisters, he faces it for sinners. He faces it for us. You see, this is the just punishment for everyone who sins. The wages of sin is death. It is the payment that everyone who sins owes. And this is not only a physical death, but a spiritual death. In our sin, we are dead men and women walking. But Jesus died, not only to bring salvation to our bodies, but salvation to our souls. 
16th century reformer John Calvin says it this way. He says, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. It wouldn't have had its intended effect unless his soul shared in the punishment. He would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. He paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul, the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken sinner. Jesus suffered in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken sinner. Let us thank the Lord for this wonderful work of grace, this incredible display of love. What the cross tells us when we, when we linger here is that we are truly horrible sinners deserving of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't hang on the cross. He isn't forsaken by God because Judas betrayed him or because the scheming religious leaders of Israel outsmarted him or because Pilate was a coward. Jesus is on the cross for our sin. It was my sin that held him there. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So as we look to Jesus on the cross, he doesn't need our sympathy. He doesn't need our pity. But as we look to Jesus on the Christ, it is Christ who looks on us in pity. That's why he is hanging there. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we must remember what the cross says about us. It says that, that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need any one of us. But we desperately need God. And so Jesus Christ was forsaken for us. And then just briefly, I want to point out, point out the irony in, in the bystander's response. They wonder if he's calling Elijah. And what he would have said in Ara, Aramaic would have sound an awful like, sounded an awful, like, like, an awful lot like saying Elijah. Why would the bystanders care about Elijah? Why would they be bringing him up in this moment? Well, the, the prophets tell about the Elijah that is to come. And he will prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus himself says that this Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. And he has prepared the way for, for the Messiah, for Jesus. This is still on their minds. As the Messiah, the one that Elijah came to prepare the way for, is hanging on the cross before them. And they have no idea the significance of what they're saying when they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Brothers and sisters, Elijah has come and he has prepared the way for this man, this God-man, the very Son of God who was forsaken for us. That's the first portrait, Jesus Christ forsaken. The second portrait I want us to consider is Jesus Christ dead. First, look at how Matthew describes the death of Jesus. Very succinctly, very briefly. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice in verse 50 and yielded up his spirit. 
Jesus doesn't die as a helpless victim. He doesn't die because he couldn't hold on to life any longer. Jesus chooses when he dies. Jesus yields up his spirit. He gives up his life at the moment that he chooses to do so. He is sovereign and in control, even at the point of his death. And Matthew wants us to view this portrait of Jesus by looking at everything else that's going on. So he's very, very succinct in how he described Jesus' death. Just a few words. And then he talks about how the whole world responds. First, he directs our gaze away from Jesus and to the temple. And he's doing this so that we can better understand just what is taking place with Jesus. He directs our gaze to the temple. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, remember this temple. This structure that represents, it's a symbol of God dwelling with his people. It was an architectural marvel. At the beginning of Matthew 24, you may remember how the, the disciples were, were pointing out to Jesus just how incredible the buildings of this temple were. Now at the heart of the temple, the center of the temple, the place where the presence of God was said to dwell, was an area called the Most Holy Place. And this Most Holy Place was a part of the temple that no one could enter. Why could no one enter it? Not because God is weak and can't handle the impurity of people, but because God is holy and no human can handle him. The only person who could ever enter this place was the high priest. And this only once a year after specific sacrifices were made and, and cleansing rituals were performed. You can read about this in Leviticus, Leviticus 16. There's an elaborate process for this high priest to enter this one place once a year. Once a year, the high priest could represent the people of God in the most holy place, but only through the blood of sacrifice. Now, these rituals were carried out year after year, and they served as constant, perpetual reminders of the holiness of God and the failure of a sinful people. But now, at the moment of the death of Jesus Christ, Matthew wants us to know that the curtain of this temple is torn into two. Through the death of Jesus Christ, this is what it accomplishes. We have access to God. Jesus Christ appears in his death as our high priest. As the only high priest we need because he has entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. At the death of Jesus Christ, this curtain of separation has been torn from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Do you know how tall this curtain is? 60 feet. 60 feet tall, about 30 feet wide. So, I don't know, probably a little bit wider than this curtain and like four times higher. This curtain is torn from top to bottom. It's a huge curtain. It was torn from top to bottom because God is the one who tears this curtain. God is the one who is giving us access to himself. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. Through the death of Jesus, we can confidently come to God without condemnation, without fear, and receive his mercy, his grace, and his compassion. So Matthew wants us to see this temple first. He directs our eyes there. Next, he directs our attention from the temple to to all the earth. Look at what Matthew says next in verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. At the death of Jesus, quite simply, there was an earthquake. But why does Matthew tell us this? Well, in order to understand this, I think we should look back first to, to Mount Sinai. When God gives his law to his people... Now, this this moment was a defining moment for the people of Israel. It's what made them who they were. It represented God's power, God's revelation, God's determination to choose a people for himself. And in Exodus 19, as the people of God are assembled at the base of this mountain, this mountain is wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. The earth is shaking and God's voice thunders forth, giving his law. But as the people over time failed and strayed, as the temple was destroyed and rebuilt, Israel was told about another shaking that was to come. This this first shaking was very defining for them. But there was another shaking to come. God gives the prophet Haggai a vision of this coming day of salvation when God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And here at the death of Jesus, we see the beginning of this shaking. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks of these two moments. In in Hebrews 12 and in verse 26, the writer says this, At the time, at that time on Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised in Haggai, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens in order that 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 cannot be shaken may remain. And just as the earth shakes at the giving of God's law, so too does the earth shake as God pours out His grace through the death of Jesus. Because while everything else, everything else shakes at His death, all those who trust in Him are given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So Matthew directs our attention to the temple, sees the curtain being torn in two. It gives us access to God. He directs our attention to all the earth that is being shaken at the death of Jesus, ushering in this new day. And he directs our gaze third under the earth to the grave. All the earth cannot keep silent at this moment of Jesus' death. And while all the earth shakes, even death itself is shaken. Look at verse 52. I feel so inadequate to, to, to describe what is taking place in these verses. It's, it's just remarkable. 52, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
Can you imagine? Can, I mean, I, there's nothing more that I can say. Can you imagine? Dead people walking out of their graves. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The tombs were opened. Now all of these, these signs work together and, and point to the reality of the dawning of Christ's unshakable kingdom. Amen. And this is accomplished at His death. At His death. A new age has come. Christ's kingdom is being put on display for all to see. With the tearing of the curtain, God is revealing to us a new reality for the people of God, a defining reality for the people of God. The holy presence of God isn't, isn't symbolically confined to the temple, but now extends out to all places. God has told His people that this day is coming. The people of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, they knew this day was coming. They've been looking for this day to come. God has been pointing them to this new reality. We can see it throughout the prophets in particular. But we see this especially in Ezekiel. In the final nine chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, they contain this vision that God gives Ezekiel of a future restoration of the people of God. This future hope that they should have. And, the, and central to this vision is the temple. And, and I want to draw our attention here because I think this picture is so compelling and articulates in a helpful way what's taking place as Jesus yields up His Spirit. Now in, in Ezekiel's vision, the glory of God returns to the temple. And Ezekiel is being given a tour of all that's in the tem temple and all that's taking place around it. And this vision ends with Ezekiel noticing in Ezekiel 47 that water is coming out from below the threshold of the temple. So imagine this, this temple, and now water is starting to trickle out from under the threshold of the temple. The water is trickling out, and, and it gradually becomes ankle deep. And as the, the tour continues, this water becomes waist deep. And then it becomes a river that Ezekiel was, said was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And as this water that's flowing out from the temple becomes a river, it spreads out across the land, and everything it touches lives. Ezekiel 47.9 says that everything will live where the river goes. This water that flows out from the temple is a life-giving water. And so as Jesus yields His Spirit at this moment of death, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And we tend to think of the access that we have to God as, oh, now we can come to God, which yes and amen, thanks be to God, we can. But far more significantly, God comes to us. As that temple, the curtain of the temple is torn, His presence flows out into all the earth. The power of God is put on full display over everything. Even death itself. In this moment, at the death of Jesus, we see the death of death begin. Because the grave can't help but respond to Christ's death. The tomb are, tombs are open. The dead rise. What a glorious picture of salvation. A blessed reminder of the water of life that flows from Jesus. 
Do you remember what he says to the Samaritan woman at the well? John 4. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You remember what, what comes out of Jesus when his side is pierced? Matthew doesn't tell us about this. Water. Water flows from him. Here at the death of Jesus, we see the reality of this gift of life. From God flows this water of life to all places. And the invitation is here for us today. Drink of this water and never thirst again. The, The next scene that Matthew directs our attention to is the response of the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus. Now, now the centurion and these soldiers, they would have been responsible for crucifying Jesus, for nailing his hands to the wood. They would have just been, this is just another day in the office for them, supervising this brutal death. And as all the earth cannot help but respond to the death of Jesus. This centurion and those with him cannot help but respond as well. Look at their response in verse 54. Keeping watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. God has been telling of this coming day, this day of salvation that begins here in this moment. The prophets tell of it again and again. Psalm 22 speaks of it, which Jesus quotes on the cross. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in a place, in verse 27, where all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. Again and again, the day of the Lord comes and God is seen as the hope of the nations. And here, Matthew again highlights this reality that Jesus indeed is the hope of the nations. What the people of Israel have been waiting for in the coming Messiah is really here. And while the religious leaders don't recognize it, do you know who does recognize it? These Gentiles. These murderous Gentiles. They see who he is. They can't help but recognize and respond to who he is. Truly, this was the Son of God. So how will you respond to the death of Jesus? Matthew gives us a couple more responses that I want us to consider for a moment. First, we see the response of a group of women. Now, women do not play a prominent role both in in the culture that Matthew writes in the context of, nor in Matthew's Gospel. But where does Matthew go to demonstrate Faithful, steadfast discipleship. Think of all the people who have already left Jesus. Think of the 12 disciples, one of whom betrayed him. 
They've all fled in the garden. They all fled. Peter followed. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus. But Matthew wants us to see that that the, the truest disciples, those who are faithful, are the ones that we barely noticed. He points out Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. To be the mother of James and Joseph, we've been introduced to this Mary prior. I can't remember exactly in what chapter, but prior in Matthew. And this Mary is also the mother of Jesus. Also the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. And here they are, looking on from a distance, those who had followed him from Galilee, ministering to him, caring for him. What a beautiful picture of of steadfast discipleship. There's another individual that Matthew brings into his narrative. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And we, we can know a few things about this man. This is the first time, the only time he comes up in Matthew's gospel. Matt, uh, Joseph was a, a rich man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was a disciple of Jesus from Arimathea. Now, Arimathea is the hometown of Samuel the prophet. Samuel, the one who anointed David to be king over Israel. Samuel, the the king maker. And Joseph, this rich man with with some reputation to protect, goes before, before Pilate. And he asks for the body of Jesus. He asks for the body of Jesus in, in the context where, where he has not much to gain and everything to lose. To go before Pilate, first he's risking his reputation with the rest of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones responsible for condemning Jesus in the first place. But also, he risks his reputation before the Roman government. Jesus has been crucified as a traitor, as the the king of the Jews. And Joseph comes before Pilate, Pilate and says, can I have his body so that I may honor him in his death? This is a, a wonderful picture of costly discipleship. A simple picture, but a wonderful picture. You see, Pilate, he was also rich, and he had a reputation that he wanted to protect. But he was not willing to pay the cost that discipleship required. And here Joseph does. And Joseph shows, shows the tomb to be something of a most holy place. Great care is taken to wrap Jesus' body in a clean linen shroud. To lay it in a new tomb, a place that was previously undefiled. And then he had it cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite 
the tomb. And just as Samuel anointed David as king, Joseph has no idea the way that he is participating in beholding Jesus as king, setting the stage for what we will consider next week. Now as we look to these two pictures of Jesus, the forsaken Jesus, the dead Jesus, let us consider again what He has done for us. He took on our humanity and our God-forsakenness, our sin, our curse, in order to restore us to communion between God and man. He entered so fully into our experience that He endured a human death completely. He endured that death in order to triumph over death. He entered into our death so that He could shake death and burst it from the inside. He entered our darkness in order to turn our darkness to light. So brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Speak to Jesus Christ. Cry out to Jesus Christ. Just as you are. Not when you've got it all put together. Not when you've gotten everything figured out. You are in desperate need of Him. So confess your need for Him. Confess your sin. Confess your unbelief and cast yourself. Throw yourself upon His mercy. Ask Him to give you a a new heart working in you true repentance and firm faith. Ask Him to take away your evil heart of unbelief and to write His law within you that you may never stray from Him. And brothers and sisters, for those who have received this gift of salvation, go in the joy that is yours in Jesus Christ. The peace that He has won for us. He has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for what You have done for us through Jesus Christ. You came as man and dwelt among us. You entered into our suffering. You came into our darkness. You paid our debt. You paid the price so that we might be redeemed. And so we thank You with all our hearts. Lord, help us to trust in you and trust in the the fullness and finality of what you have done for us on the cross. May we ever be a a cross-eyed people, a cross-focused people, a cross-centered people, living in the good of what you have accomplished for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.